Welcome to the Old Soul, New Soul Astrology Podcast. Thomas Miller, along with Robert Glasscock. You know, relationships are probably one of the top three, certainly, areas why people look into astrology, answering questions about their lives. And Robert and I both are single. We both have Saturn in the seventh house, and we both work all the time. (laughs) So it's like, okay, there is a relationship. But the listener had a question beyond that, going into the area of, are you likely to be solo or not? Robert mentioned quite a few times that he's a solitary man. I'm curious what kind of indications in a natal chart show that the person is a lonesome person. And are these indications different for men and women? That's my question. And thank you, thank you so much. So, Robert, I can hear Neil Diamond in the background. I'll be what I am. (laughs) Solitary man. Okay, now there's the song stuck in your head for the rest of the week. (laughs) Where can we peel the veneer back of our chart and see in there where we might be a solitary man or woman? Well, the first place to look is the seventh house. It's opposite the first So if you consider the first house, the rising sign, to be you, the seventh house is everybody else in the world in general. It's me here at the ascendant and the world out there at the descendant. Now, you can divide that into the different houses and be very specific about co-workers or bosses and all that. But in general, the way that you relate to the world and, of course, to individuals in the sense of marriage or living together is first seventh. So you look to those two houses because that basically tells you everything about how you relate to everything that's not you, including, of course, a spouse. Now, there's a difference between romance and dating, which is a fifth house matter. Because in the fifth house, those kinds of relationships are exploratory. You're seeing if this can go further, if this can be something lasting and permanent or not. And in fifth house relationships, there is no penalty for breaking up. In a marriage, there is. And you also have mutual responsibilities, shared responsibilities. How much, who splits the rent? How much is the rent? Who takes out the garbage? Who raises the kids if their kids there? There are a tremendous number of responsibilities connected with seventh house relationships that are not present in the fifth house. So it's a different thing. But nonetheless, every relationship between you and the rest of the world is symbolically shown by that first and seventh relationship. Now, If you have a planet like Saturn in the seventh house, two things. Saturn is accidentally dignified in the seventh house because Saturn is exalted in the sign of Libra. And so no matter what sign your Saturn is in, if it happens to fall in the seventh house, it is called accidentally dignified. That's potentially the the best house that Saturn can be in. And think about it. Saturn is responsibility, it's reality, it's maturity. So it can potentially be, and depending on how it's configured in the seventh house, it can be, it's often the sign of a fine artist or a professional counselor of any kind. And so on. Saturn in the seventh is great for that. 
But Saturn in the seventh, and then you look at the sign, because Saturn is everybody's so-called karmic challenge in life. And if you have Saturn in the seventh house, relationships are your karmic challenge in this life. And you will absolutely meet not only with great, potentially great loves in depth that are really powerful and feel very karmic, but you those same loves will also bring your greatest challenges and whether or not you can resolve those or live up to them. So Saturn alone taken in the seventh house is one side of pay attention to this because this is going to be the area that's going to challenge you in life. Now, look at the sign that Saturn in the seventh, let's say, is in. Air sign, water sign, earth sign. The sign itself, for example, Saturn in the seventh, let's say in, an, in a water sign, will tend to indicate emotional blockages, either from you or from the partner. Some sort of blockages, in, and it indicates hypersensitivity emotionally in a water sign in an air sign it can indicate intellectual blockages to people who are not on the same intellectual level for example einstein comes to mind the genius of all time his personal life was a mess <laughs> uh, and he had a, he had a wife who was essentially his maid but but and she loved him very much and, and was with him for, and so uh, you you look at the sign that saturn's in to give another indication of where the problems may lie saturn in um in an earth sign for example can indicate practical earth related matter usually money and also, because earth signs are physicality, sex can be another challenge. So if you have Saturn in an earth sign, for example, and it's so-called afflicted, it has some hard aspects to it. There may be sexual incompatibility, which can absolutely wreck a marriage. If people have different sex drives, different levels of sex drive, for example, and one of them just doesn't have much of a libido and the other one really does, well, what's the one with the strong libido going to do? You see, so you get tremendous clues that way. The second thing is to look to the rulers of your first house and the rulers of the seventh house and see what kind of an aspect they make. If they make a trine or sextile, it's pretty good. You can overcome problems. If they have hard aspect, if there's a hard aspect between the rulers of the first and seventh, that's another indication of friction or conflict inherent in, in the marriage. The same with the sun and the moon. You want to look at that relationship in the birth chart. If the sun and moon are in hard aspect, if they're square each other or opposite each other, that presupposes that you come out of a family background in which male, sun, and female, moon, were in conflict, maybe totally under the surface, but it's there. Or it can even mean that the parents separated uh, or divorced, or that they were separated at birth even. Sometimes you see this in full moon babies. It's one of the old classic first indications of that the parents will divorce because there's conflict between the sun and the moon, male and female. The same with Venus and Mars. Mars is male, Venus is female. And you look to see what aspects they make with each other. Are they aspects of friction and stress and conflict, or are they as aspects of harmony? So what you're doing is really just weighing the indicators of harmony and ease and mutual support versus aspects of conflict and stress and possible separation.
And this basically involves the sun, males, moon, women, females, Venus, females, Mars, males. And that's the basis for starting with this. So if you have, uh, she was asking, I think about, she said solitary, uh, males, solitary females. Uh, a number of things can factor in, just like I, I mentioned here already. And then there's certain signs. Uh, <laughs> the old sign of Virgo, for example, doesn't mean that they're not going to get married often. But the myth of Virgo, the archetype of Virgo, the old allegory of Virgo, basically has to do with young women who were taken out of the tribe. They were prized for their beauty, and they were brought into the palace. In those days, women, nobody was educated, really. But these women were educated in all of the letters and the arts, including the art of lovemaking, so that they could converse with visiting kings and dignitaries that came through the palace. They were part of a harem, for example. And so they they were in a sense like uh, Japanese geisha girls, although that's not necessarily uh, the art of lovemaking. But th that whole premise of these were highly prized women. But internally, they belonged to no man. And bachelor and bachelorettes, are, it's in the old fated astrology books. Virgo is one of the signs of bachelors and bachelorettes. I've known many Virgos who do get married early in life, and then they, they get divorced, and many of them do not remarry, or they sometimes will remarry later in life. And this is not some blanket rule. It's a place to start. Sagittarius is another one. It does get married as a rule. It like it wants to be because there's a very conventional side to Sagittarius that wants to not only conform to the social expectations but to shine in them. So, but by nature, you think about the centaur and you think about wild horses. Sagittarians are very independent. So there are different signs that you also have to take into consideration. And this is where you begin to start. Many, many people live alone and love it. Other people are lonely when they live alone. It's a different thing. So I don't know if this is a help tour or not, Thomas, but that's in general where you begin to look at this issue of solitude. Boy, not only helpful, but I think the challenge here is we're going to need a slow motion replay on that to capture all of that. <laughs> Fortunately, you guys can go back and listen and re-listen and review and take some good notes on that. That was a big dump of great information. So thank you for that. Now, I'd like to pivot here and let me put an example chart up and this chart will be in the show notes. Robert, I had a conversation with somebody not long ago, and they were asking this very question. That's why I wanted to bring this chart to the table. Why have I not been in a significant relationship? Well, look at it and start from where we just were talking at the first house, Capricorn rising. This is a person who, if she is smart, and she is needs to feel in control all of her life. She needs to feel in control, probably because her parents got divorced. And you can look and see that at the moon in the seventh house opposite. So her model of a marriage is divorced parents. 
She has Neptune, Uranus, both vastly collective planets. They're generational planets. So she comes from a generation that is prone uh, to experience divorce in the parents to begin with. But these planets, these collective planets in her are rising. They're basically on her ascendant, along with the individual personal planet Mercury, which is retrograde. And in one of the signs of independence and divorce, but independence, Aquarius, as gregarious as Aquarius can be, intimacy is not the easiest thing in the world for Aquarius. Too much closeness can feel smothering to them. So when she looks out on the world, she wants to be in control. So her life ruler, her chart ruler is already Saturn in Pisces, the most nebulous and ultimately spiritual sign that there is. But Pisces are two fishes tethered together, swimming in opposite directions. So it in already indicates ambivalence about a lot of things in life, which gives her a great deal of curiosity and maybe even scientific curiosity about life. But as far as marriage goes, what she sees is marriage entails a lot of responsibility, the probability of children. Children come first if you have them. They come first before career and everything else. You've got to provide for them and be responsible for them. In other words, marriage, what she sees it as, is a lot of work and a lot of responsibility to wind up divorced. So why bother? And then she has the moon over there in her seventh house, which shows changeability as far as marriage goes. It's in its own sign, cancers. So I don't know that this is a final dispositor in the chart. I don't think it is. But the moon in the in the seventh house in, in cancer, which cancer is such a sensitive sign, Thomas, it has a, a tendency to erect Barry, you know, the, the old image of the crab. It's the exoskeleton. The hard shell is on the outside. Inside, it's soft flesh. And that's very descriptive of, of Cancerians with her moon in Cancer. And as a woman, she will identify with that moon in Cancer, too. Now, she is an Aquarian sun, so already sun males, moon females, they're in conjunct, 150 degrees apart. The sun, her life force, is in an intellectual, scientific, maybe metaphysical, but certainly scientific, and detached, detached air sign. So she's very smart. And yet marriage is all about emotions. It's the moon over there. And the moon in Cancer is the natural sign of the home and the family. So marriage is going to entail my getting married and having children. I don't want it. Because I've got all of these major outer planets, Neptune and Uranus, which tells me I can do some really important work in my life if I focus on my career. And she will. And Mercury retrograde in Aquarius gives her that fabulous mentality for that, that sort of career focus. But marriage is set up at birth. Her sun and moon are in conflict. They're they're not in an opposition or a square, but they're in an inconjunct, and I love inconjuncts. They absolutely are as strong, to, in my experience, as, as the classical five Ptolemaic aspects. So wherever you look, and then second, her second house of self-worth, which is where her son is, uh, tells an astrologer, this is a very independent woman who wants to make her own way in life without the encumbrance of, 
of responsibilities that are thrust on her. And the biggest responsibility probably we ever undertake, if we do undertake it, is marriage and children. She has Saturn in her second house in Pisces, a dual sign, a double sign. It's inherently conflicted. Half of Pisces absolutely lives in a scientific, esoteric, otherworldly sense. They really do. They have the capacity to be psychic, metaphysical, very sensitive, very sensitive. And so they live partly in a non-physical realm of imagination and spirit and so on. And the other side of it is tremendously practical. So there's a conflict there between these the emotional uh, aspects of life. Here's where you get to Saturn. Saturn, by sign, will tend to tell you what part of yourself, if you go back to the Jungian sense, what archetypes you're going to have challenges with. Pisces is the emotional, the feeling type in Jungian psychology. Uh, air signs are the intellectual type in Jungian psychology. Fire signs are the, the uh, inspirational type uh, in, in Jungian psychology. And which one did I leave out? Fire, earth, earth is the sensational type. By sensational, I mean the senses. Earth signs are, this is why they're geared toward physical, physicality, money, touch, feeling, uh, uh, textures, colors, things that you can see and touch and feel, the, the earth part of life. So here it's in a water sign, and it's in Pisces. So once again, now we keep getting echoes of the idea that the parents are separated and divorced in her background, and she doesn't want that. Because why should I? I'm wanting to go into a career at which she will succeed. But I want to go into a career. I don't want to. And she looks around at school when she's younger and she sees all these people dating and, and seemingly having a ball. But she also sees a lot of pain and suffering when they break up. And this is even going back to junior high and grade school. And she has Saturn square her Jupiter. Jupiter rules legal marriage. Jupiter's in Sag, Saturn's in Pisces. So her self-worth, second house, self-worth with Saturn in that house. Intuitively, when she was born, she recognized my whole mission in this life is to either be true to myself and live the kind of life that I want to, or sacrifice myself, Pisces, by trying to conform what my parents and society and all my friends and everybody else in the world tells me I should do. Get married, have children. She absolutely is ambivalent about all that, and she's very smart not to. it. Now, she, she's not married today, right? Correct. Okay. So that's the beginning of how you can, I mean, and you can keep going with this throughout the chart, but that's where you start. Wow, if you that guys, makes sense. You guys just heard a speed read that was amazing. Thank you so much for that. Wow, that was another good one. Okay, now one other little piece of this that I'd like to play around with you. So we're off of that chart. Let's go to something else here. And I'm thinking of this in a timeline of progression of how somebody moves from getting to know somebody or first meeting somebody to the point of where they might be engaged or married, okay? So the first part would be the acquaintance, the meeting. Hi, how are you? My name is so-and-so. And then typically that would turn into a friendship. Often it doesn't. It goes pretty straightforward, you know, if there's uh, 
that mutual attraction that goes fast and furious. But let's just say acquaintance, then friendship. Sometimes it bubbles out of work. I don't know that that's the wisest thing to do, but however it is, or the typical term today, hanging out, you hang out. You're not dating, you're not uh, in any kind of committed thing, but there's an attraction there, and but you're still friends. Then you start dating. Hey, would you like to go do this with me? Then it amps up. This is going well. You figure you get along. There are a lot of common interests. So it's like, you know, I'd really like to just date you. What do you think? Yes, I agree. And then, of course, hopefully, if it continues to progress later to engagement and marriage. Can we pick this apart as to what houses cover each of those stages in the progression? Going all the way back to, hi, my name is Thomas. Hi, my name is Robert. Where would you pick up there? Acquaintance first, then friend, then dating, exclusive, and then marriage and engagement, which might be one and the same, but there you go. All right. If if you're on that vector, then you're talking about the fifth house to begin with. And the fifth house rules education. People forget this. They think the ninth house does, and it doesn't. The ninth house rules specialized education, but education in general is ruled by the fifth house, which is the same house that rules pleasure and creativity. Learning should be pleasurable, the fifth house. And it's in the fifth house in grade school with some of us, no names, me, started dating. Uh, I went steady for the first time when I was in the fourth grade. Oh, goodness. (laughs) For for one week. And God love her, she threw me over for Bobby Clore, who is, of course, married today, very happily married to somebody else. And I never let him forget it. We laugh all the time. We have reunions. But it was that feeling of, you know, I really like this girl. And that's where it starts in grade school or junior high school, but when you're young. And dating, uh, it's friendships are different. They're ruled by the 11th house. There's a total, and I, the, the ideal is to be able to fall in love with someone that is a true friend or to, to, to form a friendship and then realize mutually that, wow, this is not just a friendship. This goes deeper. This is love. That's the ideal. But very often it is quite the opposite. People often will fall in love with someone who really isn't a friend. So the the fifth house is where you begin to look. What was the question? Oh, how do we go from well from that? And actually, where you are right now is where I kind of wanted to camp. Where does the eleventh house come into this, and what characteristics does it give us for the platform of a good ultimate what could become a relationship? The eleventh house is opposite the fifth. So if you think about the ascendant descendant line, is the horizon. The planets that are below the horizon are personal, and that's the personal sphere of life. The planets above the ascendant-descendant line are the public sphere. Friendships often are, are formed, for example, at work or out in public or among other friends. You're not have as a rule, especially in high school and so on. You're not dating. You're not having sex with your friends. That's a different thing. You're not romantically attached to a friend in the way that you may be with a fifth house relationship. And again, ideally, those two can come together and you can marry a friend. 
which is really the the best way to go if you can. Most people are not not in that that ballpark. So um, that's one of the key differences that a, a friend is someone that you are not attached to every day. You don't sleep with them. You don't live with them. And they're often collective in the sense that you meet out socially as opposed to meeting privately. Now, friendships can certainly turn into love and and romance and sex and marriage. But the initial contact, uh, for example, in my thing in the fourth grade, I was not friends with this girl. But I was really attracted to her. And uh, so friendships are not the same thing as the fifth house romance. Well, we're moving down the timeline, so I think that's a good progression right there, fifth house romance. So let's say that it, could you say, let me clarify this in my own mind, could you say that an initial contact in a dating relationship could be an 11th house origination point? I think it usually is. I think you usually meet people out socially that you then become attracted to romantically. As opposed to meeting somebody that, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Uh, for example, in most most society, well, in, in America certainly, uh, you meet people when you're a little bit older. You meet them at dances. You meet them in if you get older, you meet them in bars or nightclubs or entertainment venues and so on. Or you're introduced to them through friends. But almost in and most people are very, I'm very aware of this. I imagine most people are. There is a real difference between, I've got a lot of friends, always have had a lot of friends. I'm not in love with them. I'm not living with them. I don't want to sleep with them. It's their friends. But through them or through a social venue, like nightclubs when we're younger and going out and all that, that's where you suddenly see somebody that you go, wow. And part of that is absolutely a sexual attraction. Wow, look at her, look at him. So all, you've automatically separated that person with that magnetic, charismatic appeal for you. You've separated them from the category of friend instantly. Fifth house. Now, yes, you've met them socially, maybe at a dance or something, or maybe that's exactly it. You, you go out and you wind up dancing with somebody and in each other's arms, you realize, ooh, this really feels wonderful. Instantly, it's gone into the fifth house because now you're considering, whether you admit this or not, of sleeping with them. Well, and I was going to ask, if that happens, is that fifth house sex or is that eighth house sex at that point? <laughs> at that point. They're different. They're both sex. The fifth house is recreational sex. The eighth house is committed sex, transformative sex. And this is what most people don't realize. I'll just tell you about sex. Every time that you have sex with anybody, whether it's a one-night stand or a lifetime, it is a blending of physical and mental and emotional and spiritual people. So just the physiological juices of sex, the lubricant, the natural lubricants, the electromagnetic auras of both partners, all of this stuff is blending. And at the moment of climax of ecstasy, the French call climax, the le petite mort the little death the the ego dies for the for a moment in in orgasm and at that moment 
you've got a blending of two people's auras, their electromagnetic auras, their biochemical auras, their mental and spiritual auras. And so each time you have sex, both people are changed, minutely, but changed. This is why promiscuity is frowned on, not because necessarily it's immoral. It's that Every, if you have sex with a thousand partners, you have been changed by a thousand people, and they've been changed by the, the number of people they've slept with. It's, it's microscopic, maybe, but it is absolutely real. So people who are promiscuous have more or less confused lives because their auras, their electromagnetic and biochemical and mental and spiritual energies have blended with another person. Well, if you're sleeping with somebody who is toxic, it's like taking poison. It feels like love. Sex feels great, but it can be toxic. And it can be literally toxic in the form of venereal diseases and so on. Or AIDS, for example, it can be literally toxic. So this is something that people are not aware of so much. The fifth house is just, it's sheer pleasure. You're having sex for fun or romance. But if you get into committed sex, committed relationships like marriage or living together, then sex becomes something truly transformative. Eighth house, both people are changed forever, maybe minutely, but they're changed so this is why it's important to know who it is you're sleeping with if you make that choice. You know, I could see us doing an episode just on sex, but let me ask you this. Eighth also represents things taboo. Yeah. So how is eighth not taboo sex? Well, it always is because we are born into most of us some sort of religious community. And we are often baptized or the equivalent of baptism from birth. So we're raised in a religious community that has absolute strictures about sex because the whole point of sex and religion is to keep the tribe fertile and growing and expanding. So there are all these rules and regulations about sex that we are imbued with uh, from birth, really because of the culture in which we're born and raised. So yeah, when you get into and some people are drawn to taboos. Oh, I'm not supposed to do that? <laughs> Watch me. It makes the forbidden extremely attractive. And the eighth house and Pluto and Scorpio have everything to do with compulsions and obsessions. So people can often have an obsessive compulsive sex drive. Or alternatively, they can be repelled by sex to a level that I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with it because they perceive it as threatening to them, really threatening. Boy, okay, we need to do an episode on sex because this brings up the whole, for those of us who grew up in the taboo moment, then all of a sudden, because you had a party on a Saturday night, everything is okay. How do you handle that? We'll talk about that. Let's do an episode on that. But let me wrap this up with one other extension, and that is, so now we've moved from the dating area. Now we say, okay, exclusive dating and then marriage and engagement. So when does the fifth house relationship shift into the seventh house if you move in together whether you are married or not if you move in together it's a seventh house relationship why because now you have shared responsibilities you're going to pay half the rent i'm going to pay half the rent i'll take out the garbage you do the cooking 
You see what I mean? So, and, and if you break up, it comes with a penalty, whether you're married or not. Now somebody, you break up, oh, now I've got to pay the whole rent. Now I've got to do everything. You see what I mean? So the minute you move in with somebody, it becomes a seventh house relationship, even though it's not technically a legal marriage. So in, if, in astrology, it does. Okay. And if two people say, let's date exclusively. That's that, still dating. Still dating, fifth house. Because there's if they break up, there's no penalty. Right. Dating is the fifth house. It's explorative. It's creative. You're exploring each other in the fifth house to see who you are and whether you really do fit together. My gosh, we do. Look at this. We haven't. Look at this. We haven't come. Wow. This is great. What about let's live together? Bingo. Seventh house. All right. Good. We did a lot, my friend, on this one from a question about being a solitary man. (laughs) Which, by the way, Neil Diamond was not. (laughs) Oh, no. No, no, no. In fact, I've been studying up on him. I've been just infatuated with him here at the end of his career as, you know, now he has Parkinson's. But a lot oh, of his, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he has, and he's he's not on tour anymore. He's his career is over. S- but I got to see him live probably twenty years ago, and it was the darndest concert. One of them I've seen so many. He it, it was he and his band alone at this huge arena in in the middle of the arena, surrounded by people. He ne- he took one break. And he never stopped singing. The energy of the guy and, of course, the vocals and everything else were just stunning. It was a fabulous show to see. Yeah, he really, he was a musical yeah. genius and a prodigy. I mean, there's not many like him that have ever been like that. But anyway, you may not like Neil Diamond. I love him, and I think he's great. <laughs> okay, thanks, Robert. Appreciate this. And you could see why some time spent with Robert in a reading would be amazing because you get what you just kind of picked apart right there. Throw him a question. And you know how much time he had to prep for this? None. So there you go. All right. That information is in the show notes, along with our Discord channel link and our swag shop in there. We've got some products that you can buy, and Sarah Wakeman is running all of that for us over at funastrology.com. All of those links are in the show notes. We'll see you guys next time on Old Soul, New Soul Astrology Podcast with Robert Glasscock. Thanks for listening.